Creating great products isn't just about product managers and their day-to-day interactions with developers. It's about how an organization supports products as a whole, the systems, the processes, and cultures in place that help companies deliver value to their customers. With the help of some boundary-pushing guests and inspiration from your most pressing product questions, we'll dive into this system from every angle and help you think like a great product leader. This is the Product Thinking Podcast. Here's your host, Melissa Perry. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Product Thinking Podcast. Today, we're joined by Chris Andrews, who's a Chief Operating Officer and Head of Product at Rendered AI. Before this, Chris was the Group Product Manager for Geo-Enabled Systems Team at Esri, and Chris has also served as the Director of Product Management at IBM and was Senior Product and Product Line Manager for M&E Cloud Services at Autodesk. Chris has written articles around topics such as synthetic data for the rendered AI medium. He is due to speak at an upcoming webinar on using synthetic data to improve accuracy of scalable machine vision in manufacturing. And today we are going to talk about a really interesting concept, which is about not just building products in zero to one companies, but also building products in zero to one markets. Did you know I have a course for product managers that you could take? It's called Product Institute. Over the past seven years, I've been working with individuals, teams, and companies to upskill their product chops through my fully online school. We have an ever-growing list of courses to help you work through your current product dilemma. Visit productinstitute.com and learn to think like a great product manager. Use code THINKING to save $200 at checkout on our premier course, Product Management Foundations. Welcome, Chris. Thank you very much, Melissa. It's a real pleasure to be here. Can you tell us a little bit about this concept that you told me about zero to one companies like Peter Thiel talks about versus zero to one markets? What does that mean? Sure. I was introduced to new markets and new technologies in my very first role out of college. My background was in the sciences and geology and biology, but I'd been a programmer forever and I taught myself this new technology called geographic information systems, GIS. That plus uh, programming skills got me a job as a developer at a mapping company in the mid-90s that was building parcel-based software for realtors. That was new. The company was new. I was employee number one. And the whole concept that a realtor could use a digital mapping system installed on Windows 95 on a desktop back then was also quite new. And I'd say a little ahead of the market, to say the least. One of the things that I also did, though, while I was there and often helping out realtors understand what digital technology was at all back then, I put a map on the internet as a way of showing off something that we could possibly do to sell more capability for our users. I didn't really think about it much at the time. It was kind of something that was a curiosity that I was interested in. But that little app actually got me my next role when the first company went out of business. And that role was actually implementing some brand new software from a company called back then ESRI, which allowed you to basically connect a little widget to a database and spit out maps on the web. And a very forward-thinking consulting company had won a project at the Jacksonville Sheriff's Office. And I happened to be one of the only people I could find who actually had even thought about putting a map on the web. And this turned into a three to four month effort that actually ended up with a working production 
application that was even deployed to squad cars over the web throughout Jacksonville Sheriff's Office. And for context, they are one of the largest, uh, still one of the largest city county uh, sheriff's offices in the country. Back then, they were doing almost a million calls for service per year. And so I was young and I didn't even know what I had built. But very quickly then, the company I was working for and then the subsequent companies that I, I worked for ended up starting to see value in putting maps on the web for customers. I was really involved in kind of the explosion of web mapping back then. Used products from a couple different companies. And that plus the need to be putting this new capability to digitize and zoom in on and, and show maps on the web into the hands of people like realtors, police officers, tax assessors, folks who would never ever like actually use a GIS. That need to like simplify that technology, distill it down and make it part of the workflow of accomplishing the day job of these everyday people that left a long-term impact on me in terms of what I think about, what I focus on, and how I think about connecting new technology into existing markets that then lead to a whole new market opportunity within that market. So what do you feel like is different when it comes to product management doing, you know, creating these new markets or these new market opportunities inside of these areas. What's different than, you know, just lean startup, like we talked about with zero to one or working for a larger company, enhancing existing products? One of the most interesting things about these opportunities is, especially when I was earlier in my career, I didn't really saw there was opportunity to make somebody's life better, their job easier. I didn't really see that as an opportunity to magnify that to thousands or even millions of people. That's what's happened over time. One of the things that you'll observe is that, that for most of those potential users who could benefit from that tool adaptation of a new technology or widget, they don't actually think that there's going to be value there. So, but in a deeper way than simply convincing somebody to buy a different kind of soccer ball, say, or a different kind of running shoe. They know what running shoes are for. A soccer player knows what a soccer ball is for. So in the case of moving them from one of those commodities to a different type of the same commodity, it's simply, you know, feature, feature function, cost, benefit, comparison, and getting them to realize that they will benefit in some way over moving to this different type of the same thing. When you are convincing people that there is an entirely new capability that, that may seem completely irrelevant to their job today, but which has the opportunity or potential to completely transform their job in just a short amount of time, they have trouble seeing that kind of hypothetical future. So what you end up doing in that type of market, and I, I think it's captured very well by the classic technology adoption curve in some ways where I would classify this as kind of an innovator stage markets. What you end up doing is you end up finding a few evangelists, a few people who are forward thinkers, who are willing to experiment, who actually may have a very high tolerance for failure, and who actually may also have very low expectations about outcomes from trying something new. And you get them on board, you work closely with them, prove out some of the value of the workflow or tooling change that you're thinking about packaging as a product, and then you use those few early wins and proof points 
to then start building out stories that will appear to the early adopter and the early majority stage customers in that, that adoption curve. I'm not actually describing anything that is fundamentally new or earth shattering. It's more, I've come to realize that there are significant differences when building products, pitching ideas for early stage markets, then pitching a product into a later stage market that is just a different twist on, on an existing product or solution in that market. Which pieces of product management do you feel like are different when you're doing, you know, introducing a concept to a new market versus something that has a ton of competition? Like, is there any areas of building these products you think that spikes or becomes more important um, than the other one? There are different types of perception of, of risk, maybe, both from in terms of like within the organization building the product and in the, the customer mind. So for an organization that is building a product in an existing market, these days, my role these days is chief operating officer, and I've had a experience at multiple levels of companies. So it's hard for me to just break it down to only think about the product management part. In fact, I've grown to realize that, especially with the move to subscription models over time, really product managers are more involved with influencing the whole life cycle of the customer journey around products than ever before. Yeah, let's talk about, you know, broadly at a company, like what becomes, you know, more important and what should you be concentrating on? So for early stage efforts, you absolutely need, what you find with early stage efforts, and this is true both for new products in an existing market in a big company, and also new products in new markets, both at small companies and big companies, you really need to get a couple different kinds of executive buy-in. You have to have, especially in a small company, uh, or but also I've seen this in very large companies, you have to have CEO-level buy-in. It's something that's really new. If they're not excited about it, it's unlikely to ever happen. And there are multiple patterns by which you can fail by not having the right C-level buy-in. And I'd say, again, it's, it really does come down to the CEO. On the customer side, you really do want to have those early adopter evangelists that you want to try to cultivate they really need to be evangelists. They need to be people who will talk about what you're doing in the market. They need to be seen as respected implementers of existing capability by others in the market. And so a lot of getting early stage efforts going is kind of finding those lighthouse accounts, key customers or evangelists, however you want to phrase it, to really get you going. You need to build relationships with them such that they'll stick with you. Because when you're starting out and you have a hypothesis, if you're good at it, if you've done it a few times, then you probably have a pretty good hypothesis, a pretty valid hypothesis, but you still need to go through and kind of bring the community along. And early on, you have a small community, but of highly invested potential, both backers and consumers. And that's really different from a later stage market in which you might be able to go buy customer lists and actually, you know, do more kind of statistical demand gen and growth marketing efforts to say, hey, we've got something new. It's red instead of green and red is better. And, you know, use what I'd say are later markets selling and evangelism techniques, education techniques to get the market to adopt it. Early on, you've got to have people who are going to stick with you in a way that, that it gives you the time and runway to 
find those early successes and demonstrate value in a business model that is sustainable. So when you're talking about developing these relationships in a company that's getting started with this, imagine it's very small. In larger companies, you know, we got sales, we've got marketing, we've got all these customer relationship managers. <laughs> Whose responsibility is it to manage those relationships, work with those lighthouse users, make sure that everything's working with that for them? What does that look like? I'll tell you up front that for zero to one products and zero to one markets, there's no difference between a big company and a small company. In a small company, it may feel different because you don't have the, you know, the noise of the rest of the company going on. But I guarantee you, you feel just as alone as a product manager trying to kick something off in a four to 10,000 person company as you do in a startup. The difference may be that in the rare case in big companies that have an innovation culture, they may actually have some program that funds your effort, but there are often really stringent requirements in terms of like hitting milestones that actually feel a lot like venture capital type milestones. So again, I'd say that there are certainly differences in terms of like company healthcare and things like that. But in terms of the actual activity, that the day-to-day action of product manager getting out off something that's brand new in a new niche or new part of the market that isn't really recognized today, it's very similar. The product manager, whether or not they're a domain expert, and, and I don't actually always advocate that PMs are domain experts, but, but whether or not they're a domain expert, they will need to either have or go out and find key industry contacts that they can kind of cultivate as those stakeholders that then become the prospective customers and, and users, partners often in the early uh, kind of piloting phases of new efforts. The product manager is going to have to go and get you know, the, the investor buy-in that they need. So whether that's the seat staff in a big organization or whether that's literally seed fund type investors in a VC-funded startup, very similar process where those stakeholders, those investor side stakeholders are rarely experts in what you're trying to build so that there's some relationship of trust and buy-in that has to be built there. And then the product manager or the company founder needs to figure out the right cadence and professionalism with which to keep them informed in a way that is healthy about both the good and the bad, and then also brings them along so that they have the right opportunities to provide input and help. There's no guarantee that it's always going to work. I've been in situations and seen some where people attempted to pull me off of products that I knew were going to be a a really good thing when they could be delivered. And in other cases, I've had what, in one case I can recall, I coached one of my staff through what is absolutely one of the best product pitches that I've ever seen. We had buy-in from the community. We had buy-in from even an internal kind of channel community. One of the executives in the line simply said that he didn't feel like we needed this for three to five years. And when we walked out of that meeting, I just turned to my colleague and said, you know, in three to five years, the market's going to be gone. And uh, from it'll be gone in terms of being a first entrant. And sure enough, it's three years later and that's definitely happened. Other people have stepped in and provided what, what we were pitching back then. It is not an easy, there's no magic and, and uh, it's a lot of work. And there's also high risk. If you are in an early stage market with early stage products, there is a lot of risk that people will shut you down, that you won't be able to get funded, but it does work, right? It happens all the time. And in my experience, I've got multiple products that fit that definition of characterization out there in the market today. and 
I'm working on another one right now that I think, you know, I can see in five years, this is going to be a completely done deal, accepted technology. We're already seeing lots of evidence of product market fit. And we see, get back to the adoption curve, what you find is buyers have certain behaviors, users have different behaviors, but they both are in that curve. And what you find is you start out with kind of like a, a Gaussian, you know, peak, that mini bell curve in the innovator stage, buyer behavior, but then it starts to flatten and spread. You start to see some early adopter and then early majority type buying behavior. And we, we already see all of the above in this market that rendered AIs. So it sounds like in these larger organizations too, there's a lot of politics involved in, you know, getting these new products out the door. You worked for Autodesk, you worked for IBM. They're not small companies. Can you tell us a little bit about, maybe walk us through one of the products you launched. How does it start? Like who comes up with the idea of like, let's go explore this market inside the company. Are they planning for that folio wise? Or is there just like a little innovation hub going on? And then how do you kind of wrap your arms around that mission and kick it off when you're, you know, you're in a big company and you have to worry about the politics or people like blowing up your budget and saying move on to something else? That's a great question. I can say that my experience is, you know, I spent 14 years between Autodesk and Esri and both of those companies, Autodesk was around 5,000 people when I joined. Esri was right at 4,500, 4, 5,000 people when I left. If you add the channels into them, then they actually are very similar sized companies. IBM is a whole different scale. IBM has a kind of innovation groups. They changed how they were doing promotion to general management based upon you know, how products were initiated and things like that. And I spent less than a year there. I learned some great things, but I would say my experience there is different from my experience in Esri and Autodesk. So in Esri and Autodesk, they both of those companies tend to be like a lot of companies their size, which is they're heavily driven by the engineering organizations in different ways. It creates a couple of interesting circumstances, including a lot of things that you read about in books like Innovator's Dilemma, and also another book that I read that I loved two years ago called Team Topologies, where that's all about that ideally companies should be structured to reflect the, the, the best architecture of the, the optimal architecture of the products that they're shipping. In fact, what ends up happening is in many organizations, the products end up getting structured more like the company is structured. And that ties directly back to your question about politics and how things get started and sustained. In the case of the product that's now called the InfraWorks, started out as something called Project Metropolis years ago at Autodesk. That was actually created out of a VP's Lisa Campbell, out of her strategic realization process. And it was proposed, I believe, by a gentleman named Don Weigel, who's now the VP of product at Nearmap. And that ended up kind of, the idea was created. It was substantiated by one of my good friends, Liam Spaden and Bob Bray and a couple other former colleagues. And then I was hired under the team as kind of a doer, as a junior product manager. And then in Autodesk's classic way, they shuffled things and I became the lead. And then I kind of fought for my own and the product's existence for the next three years. And so I resisted a lot of organizational change after that. That was very different from, from Esri in where, which I had a lot of opportunity. The way that Esri works was much more somebody like me could go and do the classic kind of shadow negotiation tactics that you read about in kind of MBA school stuff and get enough people interested across engineering and even some of sales and other parts of the company, professional services, 
and then go get somebody assigned to do it and start it off. And that's in a large way. That's how our product out there now called GeoBim, our ArcGIS GeoBim was created. I actually created the first mockups just and had somebody from Ezra UK build out a demo for me so that I could pitch it to Jack Dangerman. And at the time, I can't remember if Carl Bass was still there. I think he might have been. So uh, at Autodesk. So it really depends. You have to feel out the culture of the organization you're in. It will require a lot of individual heroic effort in a, in a sense, heroic in the kind of the decision-making label of heroic. And you do have to go get that executive buy-in. And that's what it really becomes all about. You also have to bring along your peers and and some of your colleagues who work for you. Because without, if you don't bring along enough people just because the CEO says it's a good idea, sometimes it doesn't mean it, it still doesn't mean it will happen. So that's the politics of it, is bringing along that whole community. So you just described two different ways of working too between Autodesk and Esri. And, you know, you could do kind of the sleeper move at Esri where you're like going out and finding all the people and being like, let's do this. And in other places, I feel like sometimes they dedicate, you know, specific spots to innovation. And then they say that team will come up with it or they portfolio plan it almost. What have you found works better in larger organizations? Like I find that large organizations have a hard time actually making capacity to do the work you're talking about, which is really important because if you're not going out there and disrupting yourself, you will be disrupted, right? Is that how I kind of feel about those things? So what do you find works to make sure that companies are focusing on new markets and what would be the right method for being able to build that into the culture? No matter what, set aside the new market or new anything, the number one thing that works is making sure that you maintain positive relationships with everybody involved in the efforts. And it's not easy to try to fight for something in a low resource environment and hear a ton of pushback. And in fact, have some people who you would think would think it's a great idea, but because they're so risk averse, not be willing to buy in. But just keep pushing forward despite, because it's not easy. It means it's also sometimes really easy to break relationships or get frustrated and overlook allies in some cases. If you overlook them, then they be on the other side of the, the camera. I think that's been universal, whether it's the Autodesk pattern where they had more executive initiation of, of new efforts, or whether it's the Esri pattern where new efforts came a bit more out of grassroots. I'd say maintaining positive relationships throughout has been instrumental, even to the point where at one point I had my product from Autodesk, which was originally designed to be competitive against Esri, later demonstrated on the Esri user conference main stage, integrated into Esri's software. And you know that would not have been possible if I hadn't maintained relationships, which then supported and other people introducing new ideas into a piece of the market it started to bridge across these two big companies and two big chunks of the, the AEC market. So the number one thing is maintaining really positive relationships. Then beyond that, it's being fair, evidence-driven, inclusive, and also uh, constant in way. You cannot, to get something successfully, you know, get a plane off the runway, you have to drive down it at, you know, at one meter at a time and you have to be accelerating the whole way. If you stop, halfway through, and then you have to restart your acceleration. It's just not going to happen. So finding ways to creatively be consistent and constant in your pressure forward, that's also perfect. 
Are you eager to dive into the world of angel investing? I was too, but I wasn't sure how to get started. I knew I could evaluate the early stage companies from a product standpoint, but I didn't know much about the financial side. This is why I joined Hustle Fund's Angel Squad. They don't just bring you opportunities to invest in early stage companies, they provide an entire education on how professional investors think about which companies to fund. Product leaders make fantastic angel investors. And if you're interested in joining me at Angel Squad, you can learn more at hustlefund.vc MP. Find the link in our show notes. So you're also now a chief operating officer in addition to the head of product, which I think is really interesting. So while we're talking about building organizations, can you tell us a little bit about how you straddle both of those roles, what that actually looks like for product people to also be the COO? Yeah, I confess to not being able to straddle the roles very well. You know, the Nathan, the CEO uh, that I work with, he and I have joked many times that uh, distribution of product versus COO that I've implemented is different from what we expected. But it's, it's also part of early stage stuff is this you have to wear multiple hats and you, you rotate into where you're needed, which is what good early stage product managers do. I started a couple of very small companies that were more like hobby businesses. I'd been in small companies before. I used to be the president of a nonprofit founded to help people who had bills associated with uh, medical issues. I, I had been in a more organizational role in other ways. And then at, at Esri, I was uh, a level two exec. I had a product team of 20 PMs and about 45 products. For a long time, I had felt the desire to move to a company where I could help build and grow and, and influence the culture and organization. Through positive relationships, I happened to just simply say congrats to a friend of mine who had gotten a new job on LinkedIn. And she asked me if I could chat five minutes later. And then we spent 45 minutes on the line. And she said that she had a whole bunch of small companies who were looking for somebody like me. And so I interviewed with about 12 small companies, CPO jobs, EP products, and a couple of COO type jobs. When I got into the discussion with Nathan, we talked about just being product focused versus other things that he needed, including you know, somebody to take on HR and benefits and, and even help with business development and sales and, and other things like that. And I immediately said, yeah, I'd like to do the COO role over just being a, a CPO and then bring somebody in to do some of this other stuff. I'd like to have more primary um, influence over the growth of this organization. So I got the job with rendered and then I found a book written, I think it's called the How to Be a COO or something like that. And it's actually a, a fantastic book. I started reading it. It's split into two sections. One has four chapters on like kind of the, the persona of a COO. The second section is like 12 parts of a company you should ask questions about. And the, the first section was so validating. After 14 years or however long of being a product manager, product lead, whatever group product manager, and I, I usually don't use highlighters, but I ended up grabbing a highlighter and starting to highlight every line that was directly relatable because of product management experience. There are many roles these days, which I would call more like feature managers than product managers. And that's something that I've never had to be. The product management I've had to practice over the years touches legal, you know, contracts, occasionally facilities, hiring, you know, business development, pricing, business models. And of course, user stories and, and even UX, QA, and then management. So if you look at early stage, small efforts where the PM has to touch a lot of stuff to create the right conditions for success across 
a large organization or across a large market from within a small organization, then you will touch many different parts of a company that later make you actually really well suited for general management. And that's what IBM had realized. And that's what, what I was exposed to there, where many of the division leads actually were intentionally pulled out of product management tracks because they realized that certain types of PMs touch so many parts of the company. And then I've now been able to exercise and see that. And the other day, I got maybe a few weeks ago, I was having to push process on some folks that rendered and, and I, Nathan was on a call and I messaged him afterwards. And you know, irony here is that I really don't love process. I, I only use it where it needs to be used to be expedient. And he just wrote back, that's what makes you a great startup COO. So I would simply say that the particular experience that I've had in making something from nothing or from very little over and over again has been directly translatable to being one of two execs at a startup company in a rapidly growing part of the computer vision market. What have you found different you know, moving from some of these larger organizations now to a startup and kind of, you're doing the same thing, but now you're in a small company. Yeah, it's not a satisfying answer, but in some ways it doesn't feel that different. It goes back to what I said earlier, right? You can be just as lonely trying to get something new started inside IBM as you can be starting your own company. Now, of course, there are financial Securities that that happen in a big company, in many, you're pretty sure the paycheck's going to keep coming in. We're fortunate to be funded well enough that we haven't been worried about where the paychecks are coming from. Nathan, the real wizard uh, there, he's he's, uh, he's doing his CEO job of keeping us funded and moving forward in the right way at the right pace to meet our the objectives. And yeah, so that's been really good. So it's a weird thing for me because I started, like I said, the very first company I was in, there were to people who were the founders and I was employee number one. So I've had I've kind of an arc from startup to big companies and then back to startup. For contrast, when I was at IBM, that was their peak years where they were 440,000. So, so yeah, it was, I think they're down in the like high 200s or low 320s or something like that right now. But, but yeah, it was huge. And so it's the one thing I do like very much is the layers of influence are fewer. You know, it's not a, we don't have, 13 levels deep of management. And I found myself in some cases in Autodesk and having to convince the person sitting next to me, who was supposed to be my teammate, of having to argue with their manager's manager manager through my manager's manager's manager about what they needed to do to help me out tomorrow. And that kind of thing for innovation efforts is deadly at large companies. So it's for that reason why there's a lot of I'd say this is one thing that Autodesk did fairly well is they recognize, they trained employees, they introduced concepts like high-performance teams. They did create some environments. And like more recently, I've heard they actually have kind of an innovation council that funds startup efforts inside the company, which is, that was, I predated that. But they did a good job of kind of at least realizing that the folks who could be successful together needed to be somewhat co-located within the company. And and not just physically, but in fact, maybe not physically at all, but definitely organizationally. And I had the fortune of actually participating in two different startup efforts inside of Autodesk and how to get experience with both, sure. Another thing that I definitely, like I wanted to have the ability to influence culture, protect people in a way. I think when the pandemic hit, I had actually 
started out right before the pandemic, I was really strongly considering looking for a, a new role in a smaller company. Pandemic hit, I think I had a team of 10 or 11. I put off those plans because I really wanted to create a safe environment for, you know, psychologically at least safe environment for my staff members. I didn't want to cause additional churn by leaving. And then we actually grew from 10 or 11 to 20 over that time period. And something else I was pretty proud of is we went from, during that time, from nine men and one woman to 10 and 10 through kind of natural attrition. And then with other types of diversity actually being brought on the team too. But that was all through the pandemic as well. And, and it wasn't through any issue where any idea of like, we're going to go target hiring only women, right? That was not at all what we did. What, what we simply did was just change kind of the criteria for considering be a successful candidate for product manager. And by doing that, looking in some different markets than just the GIS market, looking at some different types of career progressions, what that did is it really opened up the candidate pool to new types of uh, candidates. It ended up just kind of accidentally, we kind of fell into the situation where one day I realized, oh, look at that, we're 50-50 we're now in terms of gender diversity. And uh, I said, there was also other diversity brought in at the same time. So that was a great experience. And then after two years, I decided, okay, it's time to actually just go out and be in a smaller company again. Yeah, I'm curious. That was a really great story about how you got to you know, change the requirements. What did you change about the requirements and what made you say, hey, people with this trait instead of this narrow, narrow trait could be a product manager too? You know, to be clear, I, I, I had a phenomenal time at Esri in the seven years I was there and I got a lot done. And Jack Dangerman is somebody that I, you know, the CEO of Esri, I loved seeing him at conferences and he gives me a hug every time. And there was a lot of positive there. And I was able to do that because I had a manager at the time who unfortunately passed away, but um, but who also, he was looking for new models to grow and to be successful as a product management organization. One of the longtime filters on some was they really did look for people who had more than passing familiarity with geospatial technology. And yet, this goes back to something I said early in the conversation, I don't actually always think that the best PM is somebody who has domain expertise because, and this has been something that's been quite controversial when I've said it to teams before, you know, folks, we aren't civil engineers or we aren't geospatial practitioners or we aren't police officers. We are tool makers to improve the job of civil engineers or map makers or police officers. So if you are a deep geospatial expert or an experienced police officer or experienced civil engineer. What happens when you go into the sausage factory of making products and tools for those people? There are some that are successful and that make the transition from practitioner to tool maker. But there are others that get really frustrated because they have an idea, their pattern, their workflow for doing things. And they want to try to impose that on the, the tools in general, and that doesn't work. So one of the things that we, one of the most important gates that we removed was who we would actually consider in terms of their domain expertise coming in. So that loan changed things because of the historical nature of the types of folks from the geospatial market that would apply to uh, jobs. And it opened us up to other candidates from other adjacent markets who may have just a different distribution of gender and other types of diversity. 
another gate that was removed. So that was one that I definitely passed up. I also changed up some of the pattern of when I would want to talk to a candidate and when I would review candidates. So in some cases, I would change up so that we would actually talk to some of the candidates before recruiting did inside Esri. And that helped because then I could just say, hey, you know what? I really like this person. I appreciate your input. But in this case, I think this person has some potential. And so that was one. yet another thing that we did was um, we reached out into, I encouraged a few folks from uh, my university to apply or much earlier career. And we did look earlier career for some folks. What you find is a very disparate distribution of folks coming right out of school than later. There have been a lot of articles over the last few years over women dropping out of legal or engineering or different domains, the sciences. And so if you can catch people a little earlier in the career, in their career, then you're catching a different distribution of people. So those are some of the examples without like offending anybody in HR or in fact, I had Melinda, the HR person I worked with was awesome. And, and then my boss, the director of product management, Dirk Gorder, he was ecstatic because I had a very high success rate of bringing people in and then keeping them. So I only uh, lost one person. In fact, the very first person I ever lost from a team voluntarily was somebody who got a much, he got a great career opportunity and left for a bigger company. But other than that, I didn't lose anybody during that whole time at Esri. That's awesome. And I don't think it's necessary. Like, I know you're saying, I don't want to like dishr or anything, but I do a lot of hiring for executives too. And I find that if you don't understand product management, you might not ask a question in a different way to see if somebody can think systematically that would lend themselves to being a great product manager. So instead you get HR or you get anybody who does recruiting and it's not their fault, but they just go through the criteria. Like, do you have this? Do you have that? Do you have that? And it's like checking boxes. Whereas if you've done it before, if you've hired teams in this, you can say, oh, you know, they don't have this experience, but let me ask them about the scenario or the situation and see how they think. And if they think in a certain way, I can teach them like how to roadmap. I can teach them how to write a user story. Like that stuff's easy. It's the systematic thinking and the relationship building across the company and being able to like have those kind of abilities, that kind of like go-getter attitude too, that I think really makes somebody a great potential candidate, but you can always teach them the tools. So I really like that. Really quickly, a great example is people coming out of consulting and there is this period where they have to shift out of project thinking. I had to do it. I went from consulting into Autodesk and I still remember sitting at my desk one day and saying to myself, oh, so that's what it means to be at a volume box software company. Because it was like the first day that I really realized it wasn't associated with the hours, it was associated with volumes of users buying licenses. And so yeah, I 100% agree with you. It is much more about work ethic and ability to influence people and organizational skills, project management skills in many ways. It's not, it's, it's, you don't have to be a PM in a particular domain in order to be a successful PM in that domain in another company. That's a hard filter to, to try to apply. Definitely wise words for all the product leaders out there who are thinking about hiring. Well, thank you so much, Chris, for being on the podcast. If people want to learn more about you or Rendered AI, where can they go? You can go directly to render.ai online. We build a platform as a service for customers in the computer vision market who need to solve issues with real sensor data. And we help them do that by allowing them to create their own simulated sensor data that is physically accurate and that comes fully labeled. And yeah, if you want to hook them in, LinkedIn as well. LinkedIn handle is just Chris J. Andrews. 
and I'm happy to correspond with folks for sure. Great. Thank you all for listening to the Product Thinking Podcast. We'll be back again next Wednesday with another Dear Melissa segment. So if you have any questions for me on product management, please go to dearmelissa.com, submit them there. Also, if you really enjoyed this podcast, and I hope you did, please leave us a review on Apple or Spotify or wherever you're listening to this. Drop us a review and that will really help. Thank you and we'll see you next time.